Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. You know, this entire week has given us a glimpse into the fact that we're not a democracy. Hey, Al, just a reminder, this isn't a democracy, it's a republic. And we're reflective of the oh, people that we represent. Oh, this is not represent. a democracy. And it's a republic, Al. Look at the Constitution. We're reflecting uh-huh. the people of the, of the Ninth District. And we're and again, I just want to make one thing very clear. And I, and I enjoy having this conversation I, with you. I, I you enjoy have having it too, because I really hope the people in the Ninth District know on the next election that they should not vote thinking this is a democracy. That well, Doug should, Collins should says this is not a democracy. I'll even this. send you the clip. That's right, Reverend Al. We're not a democracy or whatever you think you are, Reverend of whatever church I've never ever learned of, but we're not. We were a constitutional republic. I think now we're just a banana republic where we can just indict former presidents with all types of crap. You know, if he didn't like the way that the election turned out, he didn't like the fact that ballots were showing up at 3 a.m. that were pristine and only marked for one Democrat president and no down ballots and They were just being trucked in in the middle of the night, and then we had machines going down, and then the next time that we had recounts, they were boarding up the windows with cardboard and not letting anyone see and rejecting the electorates that were picked for the Trump side, um, which they're now all going to be indicted just because they were chosen to be electorates. (laughs) Um, While our actual president is out there selling his influence with his son and the secretary, the former secretary of state's stepson and uh, the Abercrombie and Fitch underwear model, uh, Devin Archer. They were all together as the board of some energy company. And uh, they also sold anti-vibration tech for airplanes and, and fighter jets to the Chinese, you know, for some cool deposits into their 15 LLCs. Um, we've learned that the government that we elect is the government we're going to get because the answer is us. It's always up to us. We are the ones picking the representative republic, uh, the leaders, the representatives that that work with this representative republic that is now a banana republic. And so we got crazy examples to show that we're not really in the great bit of health as a country. This from the Hill expelled Tennessee lawmaker. He wins back his state house seat. Remember this guy? This guy was one of the ones that was kicked out. Um, He was expelled in April over gun control protest. Well, he won back his seat. Representative Justin Jones and Justin uh, Pearson, both Democrat, defeated their special election rivals and will fully rejoin the state legislature. Jones defeated Laura Nelson, Republican, in the uh, House District 52 race encompassing much of eastern Nashville, Tennessee. Jones had uh, uh, had received about 80% of the vote as of 9 p.m. Thursday, according to the Associated Press. Pearson defeated Jeff Johnson, an independent, in the House District 86 in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, that's Memphis. You weren't going to get much of a, a, a good deal out of that anyways. The pair, both of whom are black, were expelled from the legislature while Representative Gloria Johnson who is white was not. Why is that statement in the? St- Why is that in the article? They're trying to make make this uh this gaslighting point that uh, they kept the white woman and they kicked out the black. There was more to it than that. I mean, but they both won back their seats, and so again, 
You get the government you deserve. Listen to this. Diane Feinstein, 90 years old, seeds power of attorney to daughter, but still serves in Congress. California Senator Diane Feinstein has relinquished power of attorney to her daughter, even as she continues to serve in Congress at age 90. The Democrat senator, who is the oldest member of Congress, has faced calls to resign after health complications kept her away from the Capitol for months earlier this year. You know, what is it with John McCain who, who decided to die in the Senate with his terminal brain tumor? Dianne Feinstein, 90. Mitch McConnell stalled out last week. He went up to speak on the microphone and just stood there, blank stare, thousand-yard stare. I don't know what he was looking at. A lot of people said, did he just have a stroke? And I think he did stroke out. This is the government you deserve. Listen to this. Since returning to Washington, D.C., she has appeared uh, frail and has had a number of public mental lapses. Feinstein handed over power of attorney to her daughter, 66-year-old Catherine Feinstein, in part to help handle battles over her late husband, Richard Blum's estate. In one dispute, Catherine Feinstein's only child is at odds with Blum's three daughters over the ownership of a luxury beach house owned by Feinstein. In a separate lawsuit, the two families are feuding over Blum's life insurance, which Fetterman, I mean, a Feinstein, <laughs> that's, a, that's a Freudian, uh, she needs to cover her increasing medical cost, and so that's why they're feuding over that. Feinstein, who has represented California for over 30 years, announced earlier this year that she would not seek re-election in 2024. She may not even be alive. <laughs> I mean, we have just a government full of seniors who are just collapsing in real time. Or they just are mentally checked out and we voted for him anyways. Look at John Fetterman. You know, John Fetterman really loves Interstate 95. And uh, he sat down with the committee to talk about, you know, one of the bridges collapsed because of a truck that was on fire under it, burned it down. And the entire 95 corridor uh, was brought to a halt because the bridge collapsed. And uh, Fetterman kind of had this to say about it. Earlier today, some, uh, com some comments about... Uh the uh, tragic uh, accident in uh, 995. And if you want to make any comments with respect to that, feel, feel free you're recognized. Uh, no, I, I, I uh, would, would, would just um, really like to, you know, the 95, 95, 95, you know, um, you know, Obviously, that you know, you're pretty much preoccupied with, with 95. Uh, 95, 95, 95. The dude is gone. He's completely gone. This is the government you get. We were told by Sean Hannity, and we were told by Rick Grinnell, that Kathy Barnett was not electable, and that we needed to go with Dr. Oz. And so now, that guy, who can't even make a coherent statement, after having a stroke, most likely due to the COVID vaccine. But regardless, he had a stroke. He has not bounced back. And this is what we get. 95, 95, 95. And of course, we have the current president who uh, he's just out to lunch. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the, foot him uh, foot, foot, excuse me, in the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping. Oh, the footers of the Himalayas. 
where he's hanging out with Xi Jinping on the foothills of the Himalayas. You know, we need some of that cocoon water. Can we get a cocoon pull? Do you remember the movie Cocoon? Was it Cocoon? The one where the, uh, you know, Ernie Borgnine or was it uh, uh, Wilford Brimley, I think. I don't remember. One of those old guys, you know, the diabetes. They would go to this lake and they would swim in it. And it was like the fountain of youth. It would make them younger, even though they were old as hell. We could use some of that. Can we sprinkle some of that throughout the uh, halls of Congress? Because we've got nothing but inept idiots that are falling all over the place. Thank God we have 19 Republicans in the House who are the saving grace. Chip Roy and the other 18 Freedom Caucus people holding everything together. And listen to this. And I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying that Leah Thomas is a dude. And I'll say it here. And I'll say it on social media. And I'll say it on the streets. And if they dare try to stop me, that's what the First Amendment is all about. And we're going to stand up and defend that. And we're going to stand up and defend normalcy. Chip Roy laying it down. <laughs> Leah Thomas is a dude. And he is. And that kind of truth needs to be spoken on, at least in the congressional record. But what? here's an update on Leah Thomas. World Swimming Governing Body has banned trans-identifying men from competing with women. Starting Monday, Leah Thomas is banned from competing with women. So we do have an update on that. And again, we get the government we voted for. This is what we've been talking about in this first section of the podcast. And after the break, I want to get into something that I ran across when I started recording this. Of course, earlier today, uh, other shows have covered it, so I didn't get a chance to put it into the recording and have it sent out when I discovered it, because I wanted to kind of stew on it a little bit. I wanted to steep in it, but it's it's something deeper than just these brain-dead idiots that we're voting for. When, when I say we get the, vo- the government we voted for, did we get the government that we have now? Because we blindly voted for it back in 2008, back when we wanted hope and change and the fundamental transformation of America, that we laughed off a a president who was biracial and his ties to Jeremiah Wright's church, and we laughed off his ties to communists, and we laughed off his ties to Farrakhan and liberation theology and all of these things on the progressive left, did we vote in what we're getting now, a banana republic with a brain-dead idiot being puppeted by this individual? Did we vote this in? <laughs> because this, the building blocks were put into play. And there was a book that was written that never came, well, it, it came out, but never really got the notoriety that you would think that it would. But it answers a lot of questions that you would have especially when it relates to Barry Sotero, Barack Hussein Obama, and his rise and his lack of uh, transparency and the lack of curiosity in the media to dig up his background. Certain things about it are really odd. But this tablet magazine article that came out the other night 
kind of really breaks things down and makes you think of things in a more clear-minded headspace. You know, you're looking at things that are going on right now. You're looking at the fact that, uh, is is this Obama's third term being puppeted by Biden? Well, it feels like an Obama term. It feels like the eight years of hell that we went into that we had that sigh of relief when he got on the plane and got the hell out of here and we had Donald Trump walk in the office that sigh of relief has gone away, and we're right back where, where we are. Inflation, GDP's in the toilet, our, our economy is complete crap, racial division way up. Uh, there's, it's like nothing ever happened with, during the Trump administration. Everything has been rolled back except for we have a brain-dead vegetable uh, who, in the foothills of the Himalayas, um, who's bought by G. And the fact that the great part of this whole thing is that it's his stupidity, him and his family's ineptness that is going to reveal the entire ruse of what was going on with the Clintons and the Obamas and their their dealings in the background. The dumbassery of the Biden family is what's going to illuminate this hall, and it's unraveling before our eyes. And if you go back to the other podcast I did on the history of the Bidens, you start to realize These people put themselves in dumb positions and they're grifting and they're trying to capitalize off of name brands and they make dumb decisions, stupid get quick, quick, uh, rich schemes and dumb maneuvers and and crappy partnerships. And and it, it always blows up in their face. And now you have people like Obama, like Clinton, who use this lemming to do things on the side and now it's all coming to the light of day and it could content, it could potentially expose them. And then I go back to Barack Obama's famous statement about Joe Biden. Don't underestimate Joe Biden's ability to F things up. Well, he's doing it now. So on the other side of the break, we want to get into the tablet magazine expose on a biography. Well, it's kind of a biography that a journalist wrote digging into the background, trying to find some sort of background information on Barack Obama and how it brings certain things to the light of day. Stick with us. This is Adrian Slade. The China-Russia relationship is built on the basis of non-alignment, non-confrontation, and non-targeting at any third party. It is a factor conducive to world peace and stability, which is no cause for concern. What is truly concerning is the destructive role the U.S. has played to peace and stability in the world. The U.S. is the number one warmonger in the world. The U.S. was not at war for only 16 years throughout its 240-plus years of history. The U.S. accounted for about 80% of all post World War II armed conflicts. The U.S. is also the number one violator of sovereignty and interferer in the internal affairs of other countries. According to reports, since the end of World War II, the U.S. has sought to subvert more than 50 foreign governments, grossly interfered in elections in at least 30 countries, and attempted assassination on over 50 foreign leaders. The U.S. is also the number one source of antagonism on bloc confrontation. The U.S.-led NATO is 
responsible for wars on Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria that killed more than 900,000 and created 37 million refugees. It has also made the Eurasia continent a less stable place. The impact of U.S.-initiated court and AUKUS on Asia-Pacific security also calls for vigilance. As long as U.S. hegemonism and belligerence still exists, the rest of the world will hardly get the peace it deserves. That is a Chinese foreign minister talking about how the CIA in America has flipped all of these regimes across the globe, taken certain governments and flipped them for their benefit. And that's what they do with these color revolutions. And he's not wrong. We did it. In, well, we tried doing it in Syria. You know, I have an exhaustive study going on to my podcast about man five years ago or so. You can go back through the archives where it's a two-part series on the Syrian uh, issues going on with all these different countries going in and battling over Syria. They did it with Ukraine, with the Revolution of Dignity and the Orange Revolution earlier on. And they did this with uh, the State Department under Hillary Clinton. You had Victoria Nuland. You had their cooperation with the CIA and the rebels and revolutionaries in Ukraine that they organized with their civil society 2.0 agenda. And that's how they were able to foment the changes that they wanted so that it worked in their, on their behavior or on their behalf, you know? And so is that behavior being utilized here on our own people by our own CIA? I, you could argue that it is. And one of the things we have to look at is there was talk of Obama being a CIA creation. Now, I can't confirm that. There is a book called The Manufacturing of a President that said the CIA's insertion of Barack H. Obama into the White House covers uh, it's Obama's rapid rise in American politics and a role that the CIA played in propelling him into the White House. Research is based on a formally declassified CIA and State Department, uh, you know, memo. Now, I would say it is interesting that in 2008, when the primaries were happening, they just pushed Hillary Clinton right out of the way and just shoved this unknown person who they didn't do any background uh, reporting on. There was never any background reporting. Those that did were always smeared or tarred. You know, you had them looking at Jeremiah Wright, Frank Marshall Davis, you know, all these communists in, China, in uh, Chicago, because that is where the CPUSA originated, the Communist Party USA. And so uh, I think we need to consider the possibility that maybe he was a CIA asset. I can tell you one thing. He is running the show right now. Joe Biden is the puppet and everything that's going on with Biden uncovering all of the dealings he did in Ukraine and the dealings his son did with China and all of these little pay for play things, all these different influence uh, peddling and foreign agent uh, influencing. It's all coming undone, but ultimately Clinton did it. And so did Obama. It all happened under Obama's watch while Vice President Biden was getting his son to do all these things. Someone had to sign off on the foreign aid going to uh, Ukraine that they got rid of Viktor Shokin over. Someone had to do it. And remember, they all had handlers. Valerie Jarrett was Obama's handler, the Iranian-born Valerie Jarrett. You had Huma Abedin. 
I think she was she Pakistani. She was the handler for Bill, uh, Bill Clinton's wife, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so I think when you go through this article that I'm going to read a, a tidbits from tablet magazine, it starts to make things go, hmm, was he an asset? We do know that they talked about if Donald Trump won the 2020 election, that there was going to be riots in the street in the streets from the Transition Integrity Project. Uh, were those riots? Color revolution riots? And we know that the intelligence agency undermined Donald Trump's entire presidency. And then it is now being used to do all types of damage. So let's break out this Tablet Magazine article because it's really interesting. The article is titled The Obama Factor. Now, I'm not going to read the entire thing. It was by David Samuels. Um, it's a question and answer uh, session with historian David Garrow. He's the one who wrote the book Rising Star about the comprehensive biography of Obama's early years. It's really lengthy, but I'm going to pull some key points. So apparently he was uh, with this girl, Sheila uh, Mayoshi Yeager. And in Dreams of Obama's father, or Dreams of My Father, Obama describes a passionate disagreement following a play by African-American playwright August Wilson, in which the young protagonist defends his incipient embrace of black racial consciousness against his girlfriend's white-identified liberal universalism. And as readers, we know that the stakes of this decision would become more than simply personal. The black American man that Obama wills into being in this scene would go on to marry a black woman, arguably, from the south side of Chicago. That's just one of my favorite jokes is how they say Michelle Obama. Originally, Michelle Robinson was Michael Robinson, that he was a guy. Maybe there's something to it. I don't know. But I love that it pisses off the left. And after a meteoric rise, the, he would become the first black president. Yet, Garo documented, after tracking down and interviewing Sheila J., uh, Yeager um, over this explosive fight, that it was over a very different subject. In Yeager's telling, the quarrel ended the couple's relationship, and it was not because of Obama's self-identification as a black man. The impetus was not a play about, a black about the black American experience, but an exhibit at Chicago's Spurtus Institute about the 1961 trial of Adolf Eichmann. Now, the interesting thing about that is, at the time that Obama and Sheila visited Spurtus Institute, Chicago politics was being roiled by a black mayoral aide named Steve Coakley, who, in a series of lectures organized by Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam, hmm, um, they accused Jewish doctors in Chicago of infecting black babies with AIDS as a part of a genocidal plot against African Americans. The episode highlighted a deep rift within the city's power echelons, with some prominent black officials supporting Coakley and others calling for his firing. Now, Jagger, uh, Jaeger's recollection, what set off the quarrel that precipitated the end of the couple's relationship, was Obama's stubborn refusal after seeing the exhibit and in the swirl of Co the Coakley affair to condemn black racism. While acknowledging that Obama's embrace of the black identity had created some degree of distance between the couple, she insisted what upset her that day was Obama's inability to condemn Coakley's comments. It was not Obama's blackness that bothered her, but that he would not condemn anti-Semitism. And remember, Obama's the one that made Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu hang out in the lobby 
He's the one who took Winston Churchill's bust and, and, you know, hit it. He's the one who couldn't stand Israel. Now, Winston Churchill has nothing to do with Israel, but there's a whole nother edge to that. But there's things he did that we should take note of. His snubbing of Netanyahu, his ability to always side with Iran, Israel's sworn enemy, and Palestine. Those things were regular affairs between 2008 and uh, 2016. Back to the article. No doubt Obama's evolving race-based self-consciousness did uh, distance him from uh, Yeager, and in the end, the couple broke up. Yet it is revealing to read Obama's account of the breakup in dreams against the very different account that Jaeger, uh, Yeager offers. In Obama's account, he went, he was this, you know, particular uh, embracing a personal meaning for the black experience that Yeager, the universalist, refused to grant. Now, in Yeager's account, the poles of the argument are nearly and not quite reversed. It is Obama who appears to minimize Jewish anxiety about blood liables coming from the black community. His particularism mattered. Hers didn't. While Obama defined himself as a realist or pragmatist, the episode reads like textbook evasion of moral responsibility. So that hasn't shown anything to do with his Manchurian candidacy, but it does establish his lack of credibility. So that's where we want to start. So further down in the article, it said, yet there was also evidence to suggest that the idea Obama was no longer concerned with power or involved with power was itself part of a new set of myths being woven by and around the ex-president. First, Obama never left town. Instead, they bought a large brick mansion in the center of Washington's, uh, in a Washington neighborhood, violating a norm governing the transfer of presidential power, which has been breached only once in post-Civil War America by Woodrow Wilson. Imagine that. The absolute worst president outside of Jimmy Carter and outside of the current one, Dementia Corn Pop Joe, was Woodrow Wilson, who couldn't physically be moved uh, after suffering a series of debilitating strokes. In the Obama case, the reason for staying in D.C. was ostensibly that their youngest daughter, Sasha, wanted to finish high school with her class at Sidwell Friends. But in June 2019, Sasha went off to college, yet her parents remained in Washington. By then, it was clear to any informed observer that the Obamas' continuing presence in the nation's capital was not purely a personal matter, to an extent that has never been meaningful, re meaningfully reported on, because you know, journalists suck, the Obamas served as both the symbolic and practical heads of the Democratic Party, a shadow government that resisted Trump, another phenomenon that defied prior norms. The fact that there were not normal times could be added by even passing glance at the front pages of the country's daily newspapers, which were filled with claims that the 2016 election had been stolen by Russia and that Trump was a Russian agent. Now, deviating from the article a little bit, it does kind of dovetail with this clip from Barack Obama. What you know now, do you wish like you had a, sec a, a third term? Um, and I, I used to say, you know what, if, if I could make an arrangement where... Um, I had a, I had a, a stand-in, a front man or front woman, and, and they had an earpiece in, and I was just in my basement in my sweats mm -hmm. looking through the stuff, and then I could sort of deliver the lines, but somebody else was 
doing all the talking and ceremony. Uh, I'd be fine with it. um, So if he did have a third term, he would have a puppet that he could just sit in the basement in his sweats and talk into his earpiece. Seems like that's happening, right? Do do we think that that's happening with with Biden? Now, the other part is who also purchased the house with Barack Obama? Oh, yeah, Valerie Jarrett. Now, I want to go to uh, this article where the FBI files show that um, communists were littered throughout Obama's advisory board, one of them being Valerie Jarrett. Federal Bureau of, of Investigation files obtained by Judicial Watch reveal that the dad, maternal grandpa, and father-in-law of President Obama's trusted senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, were hardcore communists. Under investigation by the U.S. government, Jarrett's dad, pathologist and geneticist Dr. James Bowman, had extensive ties to communist associations and individuals in his lengthy FBI files. In 1950, Bowman was in communication with a paid Soviet agent named Alfred Stern, who fled to Prague after getting charged with espionage. Bowman was also a member of the communist sympathizing group called the Association of Interns and medical students. Wait a minute. The communist synthesizing group called the Association of Interns and Medical Students. Where are we seeing the most Marxism these days? In the medical community. Whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's medical uh, doctors, doctors who are out there pushing COVID vaccines, regardless of all the things that we've learned about the myocarditis and the stillbirths and the blood clots. They're also pushing for Uh, unnecessary gender-affirming care. And they were also celebrating the Pride Month in droves, like it was the biggest thing on their agenda. But anyways, after his discharge from the Army Medical Corps in 1955, Bowman moved to Iran to work, FBI records show. According to Bowman's government file, the Association of Interns and Medical Students is an organization that has, quote, long been faithful followers of the Communist Party line and engages in un-American activities. Bowman was born in Washington, D.C. and had a deep tie to Chicago, where he often collaborated with fellow communists. Judicial Watch also obtained documents on Bowman from the U.S. Office of Personal Management, showing that the FBI was brought in to investigate him for his membership in a group that follows the Communist Party line. Jarrett, the Jarrett family, communist ties, also include a business partnership between Jarrett's maternal grandpa, Robert Raycon Taylor and Stern, the Soviet agent associated with her dad. Jarrett's father-in-law, Vernon Jarrett, was also another big-time Chicago communist. In fact, he actually wrote a paper, I have the article somewhere saved, back in 1970 talking about how Arabs would fund black radicals because they could be used down the road for their purposes. And they looked at it as like some sort of mentoring program for black uh, college and high school students. Hmm. Who got funded and put into office? Oh, Barack Obama. Going back to this article, Jarrett's father-in-law, Vernon Jarrett, communist, uh, Chicago communist. Uh, He had big ties with him. Uh, FBI's security index uh, has shown that Vernon Jarrett was considered a potential communist saboteur who was to be arrested in the event of a conflict with the Union of Socialist 
Soviet or Soviet Socialist Republics, which was the USSR, his FBI file reveals that he was assigned to white or to write propaganda for Communist Party front groups in Chicago that would disseminate the Communist Party line among the middle class. Now, you remember, that's where a lot of Farrakhan's uh, propaganda kind of it it dovetails with communist uh, theology. It's been well documented that Valerie Jarrett, a Chicago lawyer and longtime Obama confidant, is a liberal extremist who wields tremendous power, so much so she could get Roseanne Barr fired from her own show and they would depict her as being killed <laughs> in her brainchild of shows, TV sitcoms, and then it would just be turned to the Connors. Faithful to her roots, she still has connections to many communist and extremist groups, including the Muslim Brotherhood. Jarrett and her family had strong ties to Frank Marshall Davis, a big Obama mentor and Communist Party member with an extensive FBI file. So that's the co-owner of one of the houses or the house that, that Obama's staying in in D.C. So back to the uh, tablet article. Given the stakes, then, it seemed curlish to object to Obama's quiet family life in uh, Colorado or to report on the comings and goings of Democrat political operatives and office seekers from their mansion or to their swift sub uh, substitution of Obama as party leader for Hillary Clinton, who, after all, was the person who had supposedly been cheated out of the presidency. Why even mention this strangeness of the overall setup which surely paled next to the raw menace of Donald Trump, who lurched from one crisis to the next while lashing out at his enemies and probably setting out, uh, selling out to the country or selling out to the country to Vladimir Putin as it was being framed. So while the attention of Republicans in Washington turned to questioning the FBI, more careful observers could not fail to notice that the FBI had hardly acted alone in the Russiagate scandal that Robert Mueller was put in place to uh, be the special counsel. After all, Russiagate had not originated with the Bureau, but with the Clinton campaign, which having failed to get even sympathetic mainstream media outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post to bite on its fantastical allegations, was reduced to handing off the story to campaign press archetypes like Slate's Franklin Four or Mother Jones' David Korn. And the fact that the story only got bigger after the Clintons lost the election due to Obama's CIA director, John Brennan, who in November and December of 2016 helped elevate Russiagate from a failed Clinton campaign ploy to a priority of the American national security apparatus, using a handpicked team of CIA analysts under his direct control to validate his thesis. If Brennan was the instrument, the person who signed the executive order that turned Brennan's thesis into a time bomb under Trump's desk, was Barack Obama. So they make the case that Obama could be the puppeteer. And they talk about how his uh, hostility towards American exceptionalism also seemed to be linked to his hostility to Israel, or more specifically to America's identification with Israel, which finally resulted in his determination during his second term to reach his agreement with Iran, an agreement with the main objective of integrating that country into America's security architecture in the Middle East while limiting Israel's power in the region. Again, why? And that's also from the article. The sheer amount of political capital and focus on Obama putting into achieving the JCPOA during his second term to the near exclusion of other goals 
suggests that the deal was central to his politics. I always thought so. Um, so it goes on to say in a passage of dreams that reeks of neoliberal poserism, Obama recalls, quote, I chose my friends carefully, more politically active black students, foreign students, the Chicanos, the Marxist professors, and structural feminists, and punk rock performance poets. We smoked cigarettes, wore leather jackets at night in the dorms. We discussed neo-colonialism, Franz Fanon, uh, Eurocentrism, and patriarchy. When we uh, ground out our cigarettes in the hallway carpet, we set out our stereos so loud that the walls begin to shake. Uh, but was Obama truly guided by his post-1970s dorm room stoner politics? Or, uh, you know, as Garrow shows, Obama's best friend at Harvard Law School was a white student named Rob Fisher, who is now a senior special counsel at the Securities and Exchange Commission, that famed hotbed of punk rock performance poets and structural feminist. <laughs> He's being sarcastic there. Or was he driven by a deeper radicalism? Um, one of the things that it's interesting, it also says that apparently there is a love note that he wrote to an ex-girlfriend where he secretly fantasizes about uh, having sex with men. <laughs> right, Michael Robinson? It's, it's crazy. In fact, let me find the quote here, because uh, this is in the Q&A section where um, he talks about uh, right here. It says, so I sent one of his oldest friends, Harvey Clear. Harvey was the guy going back to the 1980s when I was trying to solve who fingered Dr. King's close advisor, Stanley Levinson, and how it was known to the FBI that Stan had been. Because remember, the, David Garrow did write a book on the FBI and Martin Luther King situation. So he's got some clout. Um, was known that, that Stan, Stanley Levinson, how it was known to the FBI that Stan had been a communist. And, he, and the, you know, the author said, a communist? He said, yes. So I emailed Harvey, said, go to the Emory archives. He spent his whole life at Emory, but they won't let him take pictures. So Harvey had to sit there with a pencil and copy out the graph where Barack writes to Alex about how he repeatedly fantasizes about making love to men. Now Genevieve Cook, Obama's girlfriend in New York, was just a free spirit I went to Australia to meet her, and she had had a, let me think about how the best way to say this, had a subsequent relationship there in Australia that was troubled, and so she was living in a very low visibility context. We drove down, stayed with her and her partner for three days, and that's where they got dished about these uh, love letters. So regardless of that, that kind of brings some uh, things into, into public view. But we have to look at the fact that Obama does have a huge huge issue with Israel and that he could be the one running this entire show, you know, and that's what I said at the beginning. This wraps up the entire podcast right here. We get the government we voted for people voted in droves for Obama's first term. A lot of people that I know that are now Trump supporters told me, Oh, I voted for Obama. I didn't know much about things in politics, but I really wanted to heal the country by electing the first black president and uh, look what happened. He was in there for eight years. There, there was 2012. Who knows if there was election in, uh, integrity issues like there was in 2020. Mitt Romney had districts in Pennsylvania where he had zero votes. That's statistically impossible. Zero votes. So maybe they've been pulling this scam for a while. They tried to do it with Donald Trump and Hillary and Trump somehow beat her out. And then they came back and just pulled the rug out from under him with Biden. 
But during that time of what, you know, people in America thought was healing the country, he was laying the foundation for Marxism. They were padding the foundation, the fundamental change of America, right? Fundamental transformation, change in the bureaucracy. And I argue that's probably why there's so many homosexual uh, radicals within the bureaucracy. Every time one pops up, I sit there and think to myself, um, take the percentage of the LGBTQ community versus the entire population of the United States. It's very small. But how come there's such a concentration of them in our government, in the bureaucracy of, of no, no less? I don't know. But these are things to think about because what we're seeing with Biden is not Biden. He's always talking about, oh, they won't let me say that. I can't say this. Remember, they had a stage across the street where they were meeting people that was fashioned after a, a fake Oval Office. Maybe that's because they didn't want to have people signing in, Chinese nationalists and what have you. I mean, look what happened with the, Def the, the Department of Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, before they decided to pull out the big drain on our strategic gas reserves and just our strategic oil reserves and start pouring it out into the market, they met with China to get China's, uh, uh, you know, blessing on it or get their advisory, uh, you know, their advisor advisory points on it. I don't know. It's crazy, but you get the government you voted for and you need to think about that coming up because if we get this guy reelected, we're done. This is Obama's way of destroying America to turn us into a World Economic Forum United Nations of Davos, where we live in 15-minute cities and we drive our EVs that are tethered to the power grid that the government controls and they get the digital currency that they could track your expenditures on and then you can turn around and lose uh, your credit score and not be able to travel outside of the 15-minute city because of the fact that you have bought some unsavory purchases. This is the this is where we're heading. This is completely antithetical of a constitutional republic. It is a form of democracy, Reverend Al, but it's a constitutional republic right now. What they're looking to design the utopia in the world into is something very authoritarian, very controlled by the elites, and you will have no way to have that American dream any longer. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play. Tune in. I was going to say Stitcher, but that's going out in the next couple of weeks. They're closing Stitcher up. SiriusXM owns it, and they're putting it out of business. Um, so don't worry about following us on that platform, but get us on wherever you follow your, uh, your podcast. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>